With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Then we were getting ready to go public and then the internet bust happened. Everything collapsed. Everything we touched collapsed. And then I thought, all these stocks are like 50% down. They're not going to go down anymore. So I kept investing and borrowing and investing. I basically invested all my money away. I just gambled it away. I go to my ATM machine and I accidentally looked at the balance. And it was the same checking account that once had $15 million, had $143 in it. And I didn't know what to do. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was James Altucher after going broke. This wouldn't be the last time he lost money, and we'll learn that James has an interesting relationship with risk. In fact, we'll talk a lot about risk in this episode. Regardless, James has been incredibly successful. He's published 25 books and founded over 20 companies, many of which failed. But it seems that failure is something that has defined James. His entire career, and for that matter, his personality, is incredibly erratic. One year, he'll have tens of millions of dollars in the bank, and the next, close to nothing. He oscillates between these two extremes frequently, but every failure, every challenge, is met with resilience. From training with homeless chess masters, to doing 3 a.m. interviews with prostitutes, to making large bets in angel investing, each one of these experiences forced James to learn and grow. Some of the lessons took years to integrate, but some were learned in 1970s suburban New York. I grew up in a suburb of New York City. My parents worked in the city and they were both software people. My dad was more on the business side, although he was a programmer as well. The one thing about him, he was, he was super honest. Like one time, for instance, so I was a paper boy. You know, I delivered newspapers. Every Saturday, I would collect from all the people in the neighborhood the money that they owed me for the week. And one time, this guy, by accident, maybe gave me a $20 bill as a tip, which was enormous. I told, I came home, I'm like, Dad, guess what? This guy gave me a $20 tip. I made more money in tips than ever before. And he said, get in the car. And I was horrified. I said, no, 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 no. I'll just, I'll never do it again. I'll never, I'll always return. I don't want to go back. So I get in the car. He drives me back to that neighbor who gave me the $20 bill. I knock on the door. And he's like, uh, didn't I pay you? Like, just like an hour ago? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. You gave me an extra $20. And he's like, oh, okay. Um, thanks. And then he just took the bill and closed the door. But that was the sort of thing he really drilled into me. You know, a lot of people always say, oh, to be a capitalist or to run a business, you have to do unethical things. I can pretty much guarantee my dad, as far as he knew, never did a single thing unethical. And uh, he was very honest and I really learned from his integrity. 
Integrity and honesty are hallmarks of business and community. That's what James's father taught him. Capitalism was not an institution plagued by greed and selfishness, nor was success achieved by playing dirty tricks or manipulating people. And actually, I think that James's socially awkward demeanor helped to solidify these values. He didn't have the social prowess needed to manipulate, so his crutch became his values. James's father encouraged these practical life lessons with a focus on integrity and honesty, but that came at the cost of warmth and affection. In fact, James hardly felt any emotional connection to his father. You know, my older sister, who's my half-sister, came from uh, my dad's first marriage, and we were extremely close, but she... She wasn't close with my father at all. He was a very unemotional guy. So he had a hard time connecting to people. He didn't really know how to connect emotionally, but he was incredibly intelligent. Like he was super smart and super almost stupidly optimistic. Intelligence and innovation were clearly characteristics James admired in both of his parents. And although these traits couldn't replace his need for affection, they did inspire awe. James developed an early wonder for the world because that world could be easily explored. His dad led him fearlessly into a myriad of different subjects. Nothing was off the table. Everything could be understood. As a result, he looked for outlets to expand his intelligence, knowledge, and fill the emotional and physical distance that existed between himself and his parents. I hardly ever saw either of my parents. I kind of just raised myself. And every single year, I was obsessively, obsessively interested in something. First grade, which I guess is six, I was obsessively interested in mythology and the Bible. So I would read like, professors who then would analyze every paragraph. I mean, I even had permission when I went to school, I could just get up and go to the library anytime because there was no way to satisfy this interest. I'm Jewish and many of my friends were Jewish growing up in the suburbs and literally because this is the only thing I could talk about, whatever I was reading, parents would look at, would talk to me like, you know, hey, James, Do not talk to Neil about Jesus. I was obsessively interested in reading about every political campaign. Like I read the Watergate transcripts, like it was a big thick book of all the recordings. He doesn't have a fever, but he says his stomach hurts and he seems spots. But I was, what I would do is I would stay home from school. I'd pretend to be sick. Honey, feel his hands. They're cold and clammy. I get it. No. No. And I would call congressman every single day. Good afternoon, Congressman's office. How can I help you? I pretended to be an interviewer for the local paper to the point where the editor of the local newspaper had to call me and say, people are calling us asking if you're really a reporter for us. You have to stop calling yourself a reporter of the home news. But then I went and visited him and he gave me a tour of the paper. And, and while I was there, I tried calling a senator to find some breaking news I could give him. But the problem was 
is phone calls used to be expensive. So my parents weren't rich and I was running up uh, uh, about $1,000 a month in phone bills and I couldn't stop. Every time they get the phone bill, my mom in particular would be screaming at me like, we can't afford this. But I'd get home from school or I would stay home from school and I couldn't stop calling. I would write to every senator and I'd get the congressional record. I went to the Democratic National Convention and then I visited the White House. I visited Capitol Hill. Like, and my dad took me. Like he would, but he would say, this ends it, right? I'm, ta- I'm taking you for your birthday to the White House. That's it. By the way, we didn't do the normal tour of the White House. I had built up a relationship with the chief usher of the White House, uh, and he gave us a tour, a private tour of the White House, my dad and me. And maybe there was some feedback, like maybe this was somehow some reward system from my dad where he was kind of encouraging. His father might have been emotionally distant, but there were times James felt connection. Whenever James unearthed his next obsession, his father was there to give him a book or take him on a field trip to the White House. It was almost as if intellectual obsession was the only way he could gain access to his father. With his father's endorsement, James harnessed his obsessions to propel himself at an uncharacteristically young age to the upper echelons of society. While his peers might have skipped school to play at the arcade, James was developing an intricate understanding of religion and mythology. He was masquerading as a reporter and interviewing congressmen or writing to local senators. He even got a personal tour from the White House usher. A common figure in the background of these shenanigans was his father, supporting at a distance. And this figure seems to be where he derived a sense of fulfillment and self-worth. He had a software company that made software for mainframes. Started in like the early 70s. And this was like the mid 80s where microcomputers, you know, the Apple II were just coming out. Using an Apple II is very easy. Hobbyists were using them. Like I, I had an Apple II so I could play a game. But companies did their accounting, all of their accounting on mainframes. And my dad wrote accounting software for mainframes. And eventually he went public on the stock market. On paper, at the time, he was rich. You know, I would sneak through all the S1 filings and, oh, he had $5 million worth of uh, the stock. And all our neighbors bought the stock and everybody was saying to me, your dad is like the smartest. I'm buying the stock because of your dad. It's just, he thought he was public. So, oh, he's rich on paper. He bought all his employees Cadillacs. He was optimistic. And I remember when I was 18, I'm like, Dad, you know, everybody seems to be using the Macintosh. You, maybe you should do your software also for microcomputers. And he was like, well, are you telling me how to do my business? No, no. My manager. There are more people in more places doing more things with apples than with any other personal computer in the world. Apple computer. And, uh, of course, everybody switched within a year to microcomputers. He had no software for it. He tried too late, and he almost instantly went bankrupt. He went bankrupt, like his business failed. He had, like, a nervous breakdown, and he never really recovered from it. I think he always thought that 
he was so smart that anything he did would eventually work out the way he wanted. And this really made an impression on me. Like, I was scared. Like, I grew up pretty safe. Like, people growing up in the suburbs have this myth of safety around them. Like, the suburbs are safe. The roads are wide. There's no cars on it. There's no criminals in the area. You can leave your door open all day long. But then my, my dad's business went out of business, and everything changed. I also, I didn't know enough about the world to be pessimistic. I didn't know that bad things can happen. Seeing his own father fall victim to hubris taught James a valuable lesson that I don't think he fully appreciated at that moment. Confidence and optimism are necessities, but too much can render one short-sighted. Too much makes you lose touch with reality, and his father lost touch. There's an age that we view our parents as superheroes, and for all of his life, he viewed his father as the smartest man in the world. His father knew everything. But as his father's business was faltering, James realized a difficult truth. His father was flawed. That's a hard realization to come to, to realize that your parents don't know everything. Luckily, James garnered another support structure, another source of validation during this time, chess. You may be under the impression that chess is an old man's game. Not a bit of it. And it's checkmate. Is there anyone present who thinks he can play chess? Let's rewind a bit back to when James was 16. My school had a chess club. I, like, knew the rules, but I didn't know anything else but the rules. The chess team of the school would go to other schools and play their chess team. And they needed an extra player one day. So they said, can you play... And I'm like, sure, but I don't really know anything about the rules. So they said, here, read this book on the way. It'll take us like an hour to get there. Read this book on the way. I read it and I play that opening in the game. And I won. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. It's intriguing to your brain, but also like your heart is excited. Like when your heart and your mind are talking, you get like an extra excitement. And then I go home and I say to my dad, like, I I won this game of chess and I showed him the game and he was a good chess player and he took out a book that he had and we start playing through those games and it was an opportunity to spend time with my dad. I would go to Coliseum Books. They had a huge chess section and I'd buy whatever chess books I could afford with what I'd saved up for my paper route. I started to build what I call the meta skill set of learning things. So I realized I'm an old man in the chess world at the age of 17. Like, I need to basically skip a couple of steps. And so I recognized right away I need a coach. I need someone to teach me. So I paid a local grandmaster to give me lessons. And by the way, they weren't expensive. They were homeless people. So 
These weren't smart people. They were just the best in the world at chess, but not anything else. <laughs> I'm getting this reward feedback, I guess, from my dad. And I was starting to get good enough to play him. I was starting to get good enough to maybe win occasionally against him. And so I start quickly going up chess ranking system, like really moving up fast. James was obsessed. He recognized his own flaws, the knowledge that he lacked, the resources he had. And instead of letting them bring him down, he narrowed in and eradicated them. He paid chess masters for lessons. He started playing in tournaments. He started winning tournaments. He was building the foundations of his entrepreneurial future. Whether he knew it or not, James was tapping into a source of compounding success. One triumph would lead to the next. You know, I, I realized Oh, I am not a good-looking guy. I had acne, braces, huge glasses. I didn't have any friends who were female, and I had very few friends. And I figured, okay, well, I don't look so good, but maybe if I become great at something, that will be good for me. Like, literally the day after I won the New Jersey Junior Chess Championship, I was the first time I ever asked a girl out, and she said yes. And I think that was a driving force all throughout as well. Everybody assumed if you're good at chess that you're incredibly smart. And so I got away with so much stuff. And then I remember I go to my college interview even. You know, I get there and he was studying a chess game while waiting for me to show up. And I see a chess position set up and it's a re I could tell it's a real position. I said, what, what game are you looking at? And he said, oh, I'm looking at Fisher Timonov, 1971. I'm like, okay, I know the game. And I analyze it for him. Timonov with white. Fisher plays his king's Indian defense. And I got into Cornell. Chess opened a series of consecutive doors, doors that James eagerly pushed open. I sucked as a student. I sucked in high school, but then in Cornell, I started a business at the end of my freshman year. So it was a debit card business. So now we all have these ATM cards where we can go into a store, any store, and use them as if they were credit cards. And now college students get credit cards. They didn't then. So we created a debit card for college students. We had a card. It was called College Card. So parents would send us money, and we gave the college card to the students. It was $21 a semester. I programmed all this. It would deduct from the student's account. It would the point of sale would go over the network. Well, it was, I learned all this programming I never programmed before. After one semester of running, we had 700 members. It's like fourteen thousand uh, dollars. My two co-founders left for business school the next semester. At that point, I was a sophomore, and I tried to sell it like to the local bank. They thought about it, but then they weren't interested. Um, and then I just said, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I became obsessed with programming after that one experience with programming. And I got so obsessed, even though I was going into my senior year, because I skipped my junior year, I was going into my senior year and I had never taken a computer science class. 
I switched majors to computer science and then I only would take graduate level classes. So then I was able to convince the administrators, hey, I don't need to take these other classes because I'm already in the graduate level classes. So I had a, I got was able to skip almost all the requirements and still get the degree and the major. It's easy to see how James's overactive imagination and entrepreneurial magnetism led him from one idea to the next. Where he saw gaps in the system, James was fearless in working outside its restricting confines, filling those gaps. From Greek mythology to political activism, from chess to college finance, his various obsessions had gotten him this far, feeding into each other with a hunger that always kept him moving forward. Though reluctant to follow in his father's footsteps, James couldn't help when his path led him to programming. I wasn't interested in computer science. I swore I was not going to follow in my parents' footsteps. And so then I figured, okay, I'm going to go to graduate school. I want to be a professor of computer science. This is the only thing I'm interested in. And how did that go? I only wanted to get into one, Carnegie Mellon. I got in nowhere. Then Carnegie Mellon, like out of the blue, accepted me. And they accepted me because they were working on the best chess computer in the world. Once again, chess comes to James's rescue. Chess is this absurd safety net for James. The world puts his ability on a pedestal, lauds it as an indicator of intellectual prowess. But James knows the limits of his skill. He admits there's no correlation between chess and intelligence, and even less of a correlation between chess and success. In fact, the best chess masters James knew were homeless. Yet whenever he falters, whenever his life seems to plunge towards darkness, chess illuminates a brighter future. However, even the brightest light singed the moth. And James was just about to realize how much the bright, intense curriculum of Carnegie Mellon was about to burn him. They put me in the office with this guy, Feng Shu, who made the actual hardware for chip test and was still improving on it. On Charlie 7 to Charlie 5. And that was my job, was to play chip test all day long. Bravo 1, Charlie 3. And then they would take the games and have the computer learn from those games. Pawn Charlie 5 to Delta 4. I was like my dad. I thought I was so smart I could just do anything. So I was playing chip test all the time and I was supposed to be doing other stuff. That wasn't actually my research. I failed every single class. And night fell. The door to CMU had been closed, locked, and lost. However, James had never been the poster child for institutional education. Never had given him the stimulation necessary to satiate his obsessive mind. He's always been unpredictable, living from one obsession to the next. In fact, all his lucrative successes from chess to college card were born from these unpredictable infatuations. He'd always loved the stable apple pie suburban life everyone wanted for him. He wanted to live his life his own way and pave his own path. His expulsion from CMU wasn't a tragedy. It was serendipity. And right then, where most people would feel shackled by life, he was rising, ready to take charge. And then I got obsessed with writing. I wrote all day long. 
I wrote four novels. I wrote dozens of short stories. I probably sent a hundred copies of each novel to agents. Nobody ever returned even a, a letter to me. No one even rejected me. It was so bad. But I got the practice of doing 3,000 words a day. And finally, in 1994, I said to myself, okay, I need something else. I need to move to New York City and get connections. And so I applied for a job at HBO. They had me come in for an interview. I interviewed with four different people. I knew nothing. I was the worst. I didn't know anything about programming for a Macintosh. I only knew this very esoteric, like academic style of programming. I didn't know real world programming. Despite having majored in computer science, gone to graduate school for computer science, I didn't know what the hell they were doing. It was a different universe. The real world is not the same as academia. Nothing applied. And this showed immediately in the interviews. So I walk out of HBO and I was like, fuck, I'm never going to get out of Pittsburgh. And then I go across the street. How could you possibly think that the Nimzovich defense would work against me? There was a bunch of tables, people playing chess. Who wants to play? And I'm like, okay, well, at least I'll spend the rest of the day hanging out and playing chess. And then my boss's boss's boss, who I had the worst interview with him, he came out. I see he's watching the game. And I won that game, luckily. And Rob, the guy, said, oh, I've never seen anybody beat that guy. And I kind of like, oh, yeah, no problem. Then Rob and I had this big conversation. He hired me right there on the spot at HBO just because of chess. He knew I didn't know anything. And I get to HBO. I'm completely failing at everything. They have to send me to remedial classes to learn how to program basic programming. James couldn't get his writing published. He could barely hold his own during a job interview, but there was something he could do. He could play chess. Yet again, we see chess act as a safety net. It got him into graduate school, and now it was getting him a job he was barely qualified for. But chess is a game. It's not real. Royal Forks, Pawn Storms, or Poisson, they have no practical application. And James couldn't keep living this simulated reality. He needed to get out into the real world. And what better way to do that than live interviews? But he couldn't just waltz into television. He needed a bargaining chip. We'll be right back after this break. I'm in New York right now, and my friend Danny took me out for a New York slice at the aptly named restaurant, Best Pizza. I thought it was so great, so I called them and asked, can I leave a five-star review? Hello, um, I had your pizza yesterday and I really enjoyed it. Would it be okay if I left a five-star review on Yelp? If you what? If I left a five-star review on Yelp. Yeah, of course. It seemed like a no-brainer. Of course he wanted a five-star review. And we do too. If you liked this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. But I had one more question for Best Pizza. And again, I really enjoyed the pizza. Would it be okay if I came back later this week to get another slice? Yeah, of course. Again, it was a no-brainer. He answered in a New York minute. So we'd love to have you back too. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to subscribe to our podcast, Finding Founders, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks in advance. Now, back to the podcast. 
the one thing I knew how to do was this thing called the web. I knew how to build a website. I knew how to build basic web pages. So I created what's now called an intranet. I hooked up all of their databases into a web browser user interface. Comedy Central calls me and says, hey, can you do what you did for HBO for us? And I said, sure. And she said, we'll pay you. And I said, I don't want pay. I want to have the 3 a.m. time slot. I wanted to go live to all these bad areas of New York and just interview people. What are you up to at three in the morning on a Tuesday night? Because if you're out at three in the morning on a Tuesday night, like something is up, there's a story. They say no. After Comedy Central rejected this, I went to Jeff Bukas' office. He was the CEO of HBO. He looks up and he's like, who are you? I said, listen, HBO needs a website. And just like you have original TV programming, let me do original web shows. It's going to be a whole new entertainment medium. And he said, I don't give a shit, whatever. It's your generation, this web stuff, you do it. And so I went back to my boss and I said, Jeff told me to build a website and do original web shows. And he's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, you could ask him. And he's like, no, no, just you could do it. What was it like interviewing the prostitutes and the Johns and all the people that were out at 3M? Like, what did you learn from those experiences? I was really scared. Like, the first time I did it, I had a video guy, a camera guy, a bodyguard. HBO insisted I bring a bodyguard around. And then I'm out there at 3 in the morning, and there's all these, like, transvestite prostitutes, drug dealers, pimps, homeless people, everybody you would expect. I didn't know what to do. I never thought about interviewing people. So Rikers Island is a jail that's on an island right next to Queens, New York. And you have to get bailed out. And so there's a bus that goes all night long between Rikers Island and this one stop in just the worst area of Queens. And so for two weeks, I hung out there and I became friends with the prostitutes, the pimps, the drug, because they're all there because their customers are coming straight back from Rikers. And there's undercover police. And then there was the bus driver. And so finally, I interviewed all of them. You know, I, I during that period, it was two and a half years. I did it every week. I would interview 20 people a week and would pick the four best and put it up on the website. Then other companies started to approach me and say, hey, can you do this for me? And I would say, no, I really wanted to make a TV show and write a novel. To work at HBO, I had turned down an offer at J.P. Morgan for double the salary. They offered me 80000 a year. HBO offered me 40000 a year, which was not enough to live on. And I took the HBO job because I was single-focused. I wanted to publish a novel and do a TV show. James took a giant pay cut to do what? Interview prostitutes, drug dealers, and homeless people at 3 a.m.? And this harks back to his obsessive personality. Once he finds something he likes, he's one-track-minded in pursuing that thing. But I think what might separate 3AM from his previous ventures is that this interview series was intensely based on relationships. And in some way, he could connect with this peculiar group of people. I think James has always been a misfit. Back in school, he was your wrinkled, buttoned-up chess club geek. But surrounded by this motley group of misfits, he felt like himself. He felt understood and he felt he could understand. In New York suburbia, all he had was distant parents and a few friends. But on the bus, he had real conversations with real people. 
However, James would be drawn back to the world of programming and entrepreneurship. So my sister calls me and she's like, can you help Michelle, her husband's French guy, can you help him? His business is not doing so well. And I said, sure. I showed him everything I could from programming to design to the, the non-programming stuff, the HTML that you still have to learn and how the web works technically and from a design perspective. I said, I'm happy to help you, but I'm busy. I can't, I can't do this for you. But then HBO said to me, hey, we want you to be in charge of building the website, but it's a big deal. You need to hire a company to do it. And of course, I went to my brother-in-law and he didn't know how to write English. So I wrote the proposal for him that I submitted to me. But how did it start growing? Like, how did you get these these clients? Every company would like, you know, hey, this thing you're doing for HBO, like this 3 a.m. stuff or, or the marketing stuff or the Internet. Can you do that for us? Like it was a small world, all these movie studios, all these record labels. And we we. We had office space. We started getting employees. Other companies were contacting us. And then I saw my sister was learning, like they were teaching in high school how to build websites. So I figured, oh, I'm charging $70,000 for a three-page Dennis Miller Live website. And she's learning how to do the same thing in high school. This doesn't seem like a good direction. Finally, I'm like, okay, we got to sell this. It took me 18 months of building Reset before I finally left HBO to be full-time the CEO of my own company. And the minute I became full-time was the minute the company was for sale. So I met like five companies. They all made offers. And then I had to really quickly learn, just as hard as it is to start a company, it is very hard to exit a company. So I had to learn business, at least the basics. Finally, I took the best deal that was on the table, and it really was the best deal on the table. It was a company that wasn't in the internet business. They wanted to get into it, so they bought us for my asking price. What was it? The offer was about 48 million, or a little bit less, and I had 15 million of that. 15 million dollars. You'd think that founding a business and receiving a payout that big, James would feel like an entrepreneur, but he didn't. And it's not because business terminology flew over his head or difficult customers were a drag or paperwork. It's because at that moment, he wasn't obsessed. He was merely good at being an entrepreneur. For James, it almost seems that obsession can never be divorced from interest and identity. He can't be an entrepreneur because he's good at it. He has to identify with it, and thus he has to be obsessed. For James, identity is not a fraction. It's either a zero or a one. Thus, he sold his company quickly, going from zero to 15 million with the stroke of a pen. That's exhilarating. But his fast fortune would go to his head. Pretty soon, he'd find himself sucked into a new obsession that would put a dent into his bank account. The deal closed one year to the day after I started. And then the day after that, I went to this poker club, the Mayfair, and I knew someone who knew somebody, and so I was able to hang out. And I instantly got obsessed. That's the only thing I could think about. I don't know, even know if I ever even showed up at work again. For the next 365 days, without even a single night off, I played poker from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. Let's play cards. I've had $100. And what was the result? 
The result was great. I mean, the first week or so, I'd go there with $500. Ten minutes later, I was wiped out. I would go home. And I realized later there is this huge skill differential. But most people think they're better at poker than they are. And that was the key. I didn't think I was horrible. I was good at chess. I thought I could be good at this automatically. I was horrible. I was the worst. And were you getting better? Yeah, I was getting a lot better. I, there was a lot of statistics. And then I got, I was really good at reading people. So that was really, I was better than at that than the statistics. Like sometimes I was kind of clueless. So when did you start winning? I would say after about three or four months of every day losing $500. I'm best at one-on-one. -on -one. So if you, just you and me rather than a whole table of people, because then that's when the psychology is much more important than the statistics. James was hemorrhaging $500 a day like it was no big deal. Maybe it wasn't. Aside from skyrocketing his parents' phone bill, his previous obsessions were harmless, at least financially. At this point, though, to James, $500 was essentially pennies. So that money wasn't necessarily missed. Additionally, he was getting pretty good. So what's the downside? I think poker cultivated dopamine rush associated with investing. There was this thrill imbued in high-stakes financial maneuvers. He felt powerful, even invincible. And I think he would take the essence of this adrenaline-filled obsession to a place that was far less welcoming of these maneuvers. He'd start investing in companies. Finally, one guy ruined my life and he said, you're so smart and you have all these different internet ideas. Why are you playing pokers? Poker's going nowhere. Yeah, you're good at poker, but you should be starting internet businesses. So I'm like, yeah, I should be making a lot of money. And I thought, oh, I could be great at anything. I must be brilliant because I have $15 million cash in the bank. And so I stopped playing poker on a dime and I started investing in internet companies. I started a venture capital fund. I started another business. I wrote to every wireless software company in the country and I said, I want to buy your company. Only one responded and said, oh, this is good timing. We're about to get bought by Ericsson for $12 million. And I said, oh, don't let Ericsson, the phone company, buy you for $12 million cash. Let me buy you for $15 million. So we signed the contract. And so then with that contract, that was the only asset I had, I raised $30 million and gave them fifteen. <laughs> Then we were getting ready to go public and then the internet bust happened and everyone's like, uh, let's just wait and see where this goes. Shepard says the new economy is not immune to old fashioned downturns, but says the internet is revolutionary. It's gonna affect every industry. It's gonna affect the way you do your job. It's already affecting the way I do my job. Every industry is gonna be affected by this. Everything collapsed. Everything we touched collapsed. And then I thought, all these stocks are like 50% down. They're not going to go down anymore. And the internet is huge. The internet's growing every day. It doesn't make sense. I knew nothing about how the stock market worked. So I kept investing and borrowing and investing. I wish I could say I lost this money because of something fun that I did. But I basically invested all my money away. I just gambled it away. I go to my ATM machine and I accidentally looked at the balance and it was the same checking account that once had 15 million 
had $143 in it, and I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was so depressed. I had a life insurance policy. I thought maybe if I kill myself, my I had two kids then, they were babies, so I thought, all right, you know, they won't they won't remember me. Their mom will get remarried, that will be their dad, and I'll kill myself and they'll have they'll have 4 million dollars in life insurance and that that will be my legacy to them. We lost the home. We I was exiled out of New York City, moved 70 miles upstate. Didn't leave my house for months. Didn't know what to do. James was the definition of rock bottom. He had no apartment, no friends, and a measly $143 left in his bank account. He was even contemplating suicide for the insurance money. How did he fall so far so fast? Bad business decisions played a part, but I think what was more to blame was his ego. James felt untouchable. And like his father, he became a hopeless optimist. He believed his intelligence would always prevail. But he was wrong. People don't realize that the fall is much tougher than the climb. He was so focused on the exhilaration of climbing the mountain that he never stopped to ponder the possibility of the cliff until it was too late. Until he was literally lying in a crater of his own making. James let his ego cloud his logic. And it came back to haunt him. But he bounced back. And then I started this practice of, I've got to get myself out there. I loved the look of waiter's pads. So I would take a waiter's pad with me early in the morning, like 6 a.m. every morning. I go to the local cafe and I started writing. I don't know why I started doing this. I started writing 10 ideas a day. Within like three or four weeks, I felt like, oh my gosh, it's that feeling again. Like I was getting excited. And the way I was thinking of it was that ideas are like a muscle. Then I started writing business ideas down. I started writing investing ideas down. I became obsessed with investing. I read every book on investing. I wrote software to model all the stock markets. I sent ideas. I started sending ideas to other people. Didn't ask for anything. I sent to 20 people ideas for their businesses. I was an idea machine at this point. Like your ideas are a muscle. And if you exercise it, I felt it. Like it felt like my I, that part of my brain was growing. Jim Cramer, who I'd written these ideas to, he said, these ideas are great. You should start writing for thestreet.com. The other guy who responded to me out of 20 said, these systems are great. And he eventually allocated money to me and I started a hedge fund. So now I had these two careers going all of a sudden. I got better and better as a professional writer. I started writing for many publications, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance. And as a hedge fund, I got bigger and bigger. I was trading bigger and bigger amounts using my software. And then I started a fund of funds. I would invest in other hedge funds. I wanted to sell this fund of hedge funds and a bank agreed to buy it, but they wanted me to sign a six-year employment agreement. If I don't stay for six years, I owe all the money back. And I'm like, oh, the only value in this business is me. So I, I shut down the hedge fund and I started brainstorming and I started writing ideas. What business could I build? What internet business could I build? And so I built 10 different businesses. None of them worked. And the 11th business, knowing what I knew about thestreet.com, Yahoo Finance, Motley Fool, I knew a lot now about finance websites. So I built my ideal finance website. 
And then as soon as, as I finished building it, it was for sale. So the street.com owned half of it. And then I went, the day after we announced its existence, I called Google, AOL, Reuters, IACI, Interactive Corp. And I said, my half is for sale. This is the MySpace of finance. MySpace had just sold for 500 million. And finally, the street.com said, we can't let you sell your half. We'll, we'll buy half. The company was valued at 10 million, which meant my half was worth 5 million. Two years later, I was broke once again. <laughs> dead broke. You were dead broke because of the financial crisis? That was part of it, but I also did the same thing. I started investing in other companies and I just- How do you make so much money? You take the emotion of investing. You have all this like knowledge from making all this money. And then like, it seems like you apply the same strategies or are you applying different strategies to lose the money? Like how, how, why is this happening again and again? I was honestly greedy. So when I had 15 million, I thought I was poor. This is nothing. Other people are making hundreds of millions on the internet right now. They're all going to be wealthier than me. I'm literally nothing unless I catch up to them. Go from 15 million to 100, you have to make enormous size bets, which is the wrong way to invest. What I didn't understand then, but I understand now, the most important thing about entrepreneurship and investing, because they're very related, the most important thing is reducing risk. If you reduce all risk, then the worst that could happen is you break even. And the best that could happen is you have a good strategy that works over time and you make a lot of money. 90% of investing is reducing risk. 10% is kind of the concept or idea you have. James exemplifies ambition's darker side. He's brilliant and seems to have an ability to pull companies out of thin air, but at the same time, that brilliance gives him a delusion of grandeur. He thought if he was great at chess, then he could be great at programming. Then he could be great at poker. Then he could be great at investing. And that's not to say that he didn't have prowess in these areas. But when you have an inflated view of your intelligence and pair that with greed, blind spots arise and implosion comes around the corner. But I don't think solely greed was what caused his financial crises. It was his insecurity. James had a tendency to compare himself to others. He has an incessant need to be better, even the best, because he believes he can be. And that drove him to take big risks. But it would be his admittance of his shortcomings that would take him in a new direction. Then around 2010, I was losing money again. And I'm just like, oh my God, I cannot believe this is happening. It was after the financial crisis where I was incredibly optimistic right at the bottom. And at that point, nobody was optimistic except me. Everybody thought I was an idiot. And I just started writing about how every time I had lost money, how I dealt with it. And I was just being like totally like blatantly honest. You know, I had started writing in 1990, so 20 years earlier, and I'd been writing every day. At this point, I had this incredible skill that I had really worked at that was very different from other financial people. That was my audience, was the financial audience, and people were like, what the hell is this? This is like watching a train wreck in real time. Like, I was just admitting every single time I lost money, but I was doing in this storytelling, this very literary way. Like, nobody had seen this. I started getting book deals and opportunities and suddenly I had my audience was 10 times as big as it ever had been in the financial space. And then I wrote Choose Yourself. It was like my 15th book, but it sold like close to a million copies. 
one guy read it and he said, you should do a newsletter for me. And I said, I don't want to do a newsletter. I just like writing right now. I don't want to write about finance. And he said, no, 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 you're an expert of finance and you're a good writer. I could see it. He had read Choose Yourself. He flew up that day to beg me to write a newsletter for his company. And I said, no way. And he said, look, I'm going to sell the hardcover version of Choose Yourself. I'm going to sell it for $20 a copy and give you $10 a copy. And I'm going to sell 20,000 copies. Two weeks later, he sent me a check for $200,000. It was selling for 99 cents on Amazon. But he, he had showed me the power of a newsletter. I said, no, I'm not doing a newsletter. And he said, okay, well, at least let me do a podcast for you. I want to be associated with you. So I started doing a podcast in 2014. That got me back into interviewing. It gave a lot of fuel for my writing. It, it gave me content for book after book after book. I learned so much. I've interviewed a thousand people who are like the best in the world at what they do. Everybody from the world chess champion to Richard Branson to Congressman, President Andrew Yang, you know, Mark Cuban a bunch of times. James took the lessons he learned from interviewing prostitutes and drug dealers and applied those lessons to the likes of Mark Cuban, Tyra Banks, and Danica Patrick. And you have to admit, James's journey plays like a soap opera to say the least. But I think the one constant, maybe his savior in this emotional roller coaster, was writing. The first time he lost it all, he wrote ideas down as a form of therapeutic recovery. And now writing had become a safe haven for him to document his story. He doesn't have to soften a blow or change the narrative. All he has to do is be honest. And I think this type of reflection is important. Admitting your mistakes and truly analyzing them, it's the first step to recovery. And James is more than recovering. He's flourishing in his newfound stability. For the first time in my life, I've been getting excited about being an entrepreneur. Even though I've started over a dozen companies, this is the first time in my life I'm actually excited to be an entrepreneur. And so I've started a, a company. But I'm do, I do my podcast four or five days a week. And I, I have a, a, a major book coming out in February. So I'm still doing a lot of writing. But I think after this wave of books, I've written 25 books at this point. After this, I'm going to go a completely different direction in writing. For the first time, James is excited to call himself an entrepreneur. Previously, it felt like he associated the term entrepreneur with failure, with instability. The one entrepreneur in his life was his father, and he never wanted to follow in his footsteps. He never wanted to be completely deflated by his business shortcomings. And it's safe to say, James always bounced back, no matter how hard the fall was. Most people would have given up and changed careers if they broke as many times as James. But for him, his successes and failures were moments of education. And entrepreneurship gave him the freedom to dabble, to find his next obsession. James was all about experimentation. To finish up, what advice would you give to an, like a young entrepreneur or maybe like yourself at those low points when you had lost all your money? View everything as an experiment at first. And what are the qualities of an experiment? You're testing a theory where the answer is not easily known. Somebody might know the answer, but you don't know it. You don't know if this theory is correct or not. The first part of an experiment. And then you design a way to test this theory that has very little downside in both money and time enormous upside if the experiment works and worst case if the experiment doesn't work you learn something so i'll give you an example just from comedy for instance i was having a real hard time dealing with a hecklers like a negative audience and i was really having a really hard time doing one-liners 
with somebody videotaping me, I went on a subway and I just started doing stand-up on the subway. That's the most hostile audience you could possibly imagine. And every subway stop, I would switch to a different car. So new audience every two minutes. That was an experiment. I had no downside except the time. My upside was getting much better at dealing with those types of audiences and, and getting better at one-liners. And worst case is, I had a videotape of me doing something really weird and probably awful, which it was, both weird and awful. But that was a good experiment. Everybody talks about the 10,000 hour rule. You have to do 10,000 hours to really master something. That theory is bullshit. I was struggling so much with this 10,000 hour rule because how was I going to do 10,000 hours of comedy? I couldn't. And I realized the reason I'd gotten good at facet everything is that I would experiment all the time. And, and so now that I've formulized it, it's even gotten faster how I learn. And combined with the 10 ideas a day, to combine with, you know, understanding risk. Those skills are the, the key, the key skills. And then, you know, salesmanship, persuasion, all those things are important skills, but risk and experimenting are important. I think many people look at failure as a setback, but James sees failure as a chance to learn and evaluate as a way to better himself. Failure shouldn't be feared, it should be embraced. I'm not saying that we should all try our hands at making millions and losing it. What I am saying is we shouldn't be afraid to try. Life is boring without a little risk, without a little uncertainty. And I think what we should take away from James's story is to stay resilient through this uncertainty. After so many heartbreaking losses, he still has the will to keep going, to keep taking risks. He doesn't let losses break his spirit. It's almost as if he is energized by failure. In an odd way, his many rock bottoms are comforting. If he can recover and make millions of dollars after having only $100 in his bank account, then there's no situation in which there isn't hope, in which there isn't opportunity to once again climb towards success. For James, his safety nets have been chess and writing. These are skills he's honed and he can fall back on. And I think more than just the general get back up advice, I want to take that a step further. If you have a skill, if you develop a craft, failure will always be a moment, a moment that will pass. If you keep working on your craft, keep tuning what you are good at, then whenever you are faced with failure, you'll get back up. So find that craft. That's what James did. And you can too. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our editing lead is Adrian Tapia, with the support from Joseph Cho, Eli Lauren, Matt Fernandez, Amir Gold, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, and Shannon O'Halloran. Our script writing team lead is Joyce Mock, with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chafla, Mitchell Lynn, and Gemma Brandwolf, Elizabeth Bowen, and Sharon Chen. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn, with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Alice Yao, Ankita Nambiar, and Jamil Swayze. Our design and social media team lead is Annie Liu, with support from Phoebe Sajor, Tiffany Day, Rick Liu, Kayla Erickson, and Shruti Ramanand. And James Barton. 
To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.